Yeah, we start, I just started recording. So we get O Heavenly King back at Pentecost because it's a hymn to the Holy Spirit. It's a, a, uh, I thought we got it back at Ascension, but I was wrong. So nope. I started it today. <laughs> <laughs> we, at Pascha, but there's no O Heavenly King through all of Paschal Tide because it's Christ is risen from the dead is what replaces O Heavenly King. And then at Ascension, you just go straight to Holy God, Holy Mighty, Holy Immortal, and you're like the Trisagian prayers. And then we get it back, and we also get kneeling back, uh, which is why at Pentecost at the Vespers, we the kneeling prayers is us getting kneeling back. Um, and that's when we get kneeling back? Is that when we get uh, O Heavenly King back? We'll start singing O Heavenly King at Vigil the night before, <coughs> at, Pentecost, at, the, at the start of Pentecost. Okay. So, uh, this is where the liturgical life, uh, I don't think I knew that for probably the first six to seven years of being Orthodox. A lot of that has to do with just the certain Orthodox churches in North America don't do as full of a cycle of services that we, as we do. And you may be like, but we don't really do a full cycle of services. We don't, but we do more than, <laughs> than a lot of other parishes do. So the fact that we do vigil for the major feasts is already, there's a lot of churches that don't do, that, a lot of churches that don't even do Vespers the night before. I'm not saying that to like toot our horn. What I'm saying is I went to a lot of churches where we might have a Vesperal liturgy, which is not really actually technically right, but it's something that they try, they were trying to do in order to get more attendance. I think the, there's, the jury is out whether or not that actually helped. I'm sure it's parish to parish. Uh, but what happens when you do a Vesperal liturgy is you get the Lord I have called, so you get a few hymns for the, for the feast, and then it goes right in the liturgy. So you don't get any of the hymnody of matins. You don't get any of the hymnody of like, so you'd have a major feast of like the entrance of the Theotokos in the temple, and you hear four or five hymns about that, and then like the Traparian, and that's it. So you miss a lot of the theology and the hymnody and the, the time and space to actually celebrate those things. So th things like losing the heavenly king, and there's that kind of, uh, we lose it in order to miss it. Mm -hmm. And you know, and it's like kind of in your basic daily prayers, you know, I'm looking forward to being able to call upon the Holy Spirit again and say, oh, heavenly king. Um, so, uh, any questions or anything in regards? Because I think this is the first like study that we've had in a few two, two or three months, maybe. I think we had maybe one during Lent. Sorry, my children are loud. <laughs> Does it bother anybody? <laughs> it's no, the normal background I'm noise. Really glad to have kids. <laughs> so, uh, is there any um, question, like liturgical, or just in general? questions about anything that has happened liturgically the past few months we we went through lint we had paschal tide we're in ascension tide right now all these are kind of more western ways of talking about it but it's the same thing it's, this is the feast of the ascension right now and we're waiting for uh pentecost does anyone know what the sunday this upcoming sunday is what the theme is nope it's a good guess. The Ascension will be there, but it's not It's not the Feast of the Ascension. Ascension is Thursday. Ascension is always Thursday. So It'll, when? Wednesday night would have been Vigil for Ascension. Okay. And then Liturgy, the Festival Liturgy, would have been Thursday morning. Okay. 
Sunday is the, the Fathers of the First Ecumenical Council. So it's the in-between. That's okay. <laughs> I, I'm preparing a sermon, so it's in, <laughs> it's in my head. Uh, it is this beautiful thing where you get, you know, the Feast of the Ascension and then that Sunday, because there's always a Sunday between it and Pentecost, right? Uh, that they put in, the church puts in there, we're going to commemorate the Fathers of the First Ecumenical Council. Do you remember what the First Ecumenical Council what the theme of the First Ecumenical Council was? Arius. It's Arius. Yeah. That's the, ne- the negative way of putting it, right? How so? The divinity or the... Yes, right. That he's fully divine and fully human, right? So that... Why, why would you do that right now? What is the big thrust of ascension? I mean, yes, Jesus goes up, right? He sits by the Father. He's seated at the, in the heavenly court, right? Like he's seated at the right hand of the Father because he's return, returned human nature back to its right position, right? Which is where God originally created us to be, is being see, seated next to him, basically. So we get the fathers of the First Ecumenical Council who defend that basic truth. You would think maybe the fathers of the First Ecumenical Council would be around Christmas or something, but no, they put it in between Ascension and, and Pentecost. Because at Pentecost, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? The, the promise. So yeah, you have to have the, inc- the economy of God's salvation. So it's not just that Jesus came in the flesh, but it's that whole cycle. Flesh, that he was tempted, that he taught, that he was betrayed, that he was killed, right? That he was in the grave. Then he rises from the grave, and then he's with his disciples for that period of time. And then he ascends in glory. And then we await the Holy Spirit. We're like, we're going with the apostles to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit to descend upon us. So that is one of the importance of the liturgical cycle is it helps us. In some ways, I think it feels abstract. At least it kind of did when I was first in. It's like, okay, we're doing these things, but it's really just following the Bible, (laughs) trying to have us live the experience in a certain way of what the apostles themselves uh, were experiencing. And speaking of apostles, I guess this is how I'm going to segue into Titus. We've been doing Titus, which is St. Uh, Paul's letter to Titus, where he was uh, going to minister in Crete. Uh, and the first chapter and the second chapter, what would you think are some major themes that we've covered in Titus? Because the, all of these three chapters hold together, as we'll see. Do you remember any of the themes from the first two chapters? Leadership. Leadership. What aspect of Leadership. What are the traits that compose like a good leader of the Christian faith? Why was that important? Um, because the, there are people who weren't. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you had people who they're teaching false teachings, mm-hmm. right? They're creating division. They're creating problems in the church. And so basically Paul sends in a Marine to go and gather troops together and make sure that there's order in the church. Uh, there's some really strong words that Paul has for those who are causing division. And uh, and we're going to see it even in this chapter today because the themes kind of, he kind of constantly recapitulates the themes. What are some other themes that, that are tied to that? So we had, he de- depicted like, this is what a good teacher is. He also said, this is what the bad guys are like. <laughs> and then good doctrine gets good behavior. Yes, this constant that teachings and then the way we live, they're supposed to actually flow from one another. So good teaching means good praxis, good practice, right? And good practice means good doctrine. Yes. 
the the scriptures really see that if there's false teaching, it will end up with false practice. That there will be uh, things that show themselves because of the false teaching, and this runs even not even just scripture, but all through the fathers too. You have um, Saint Ignatius when he talks about the Eucharist. He talks a lot about how people treat each other. Paul talks like this way too, right? If you believe that is truly the body and blood of Christ, then you're going to treat the brothers and sisters in the congregation as if they are actually brothers and sisters, that they're made in the image of God. And the way that you commune is something that reflects how then you act towards others in the church. I think there's also expand to how you treat humans in general, but there's a special uh, emphasis on those in the church. I think it's mostly because we rub the most shoulders <laughs> and are going to have the most conflict with those that we're actually living life together with, right? There's also a theme throughout Titus about that we see in two, because I think at two, I, I launched the mentor question. We, we had a larger discussion from Titus two, but there's a theme because I don't think that we, we didn't talk about the men very much or that order, but the constant theme is very similar to what he's telling the older women, teaching the younger women, but he's telling the men, be sober, uh, be uh, temperate, be uh, basically let nothing be said evil of you from those from outside, right? Then you have the whole thing about bond servants, slaves, servants. And what is the whole gist that Paul is telling them there in Titus 2 about bond servants? I forget the, I don't have Titus 2 in front of me. Do you see the, the verse? Be obedient to their own masters and well-pleasing in all things. Government. I mean, not There's more. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, be well pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Did you want more than that? No. But that's it. So basically, be, be a Christian in all circumstances, right? Don't be rebellious. Don't be. Uh, uh, basically do all things to adorn I like that that image of adorning the doctrine of God so that you actually show it to be so that there's nothing beautiful right great much better than what I was fumbling with (laughs) why why would that be the, the focus of Paul You can, it's a real, it's a, that's, that, that was a alley-oop. You can say, I'm not looking for an esoteric answer to that. <laughs> Why was it important to Paul that we show Christianity to be beautiful? Yeah. So that people want to be Christians? Yes. <laughs> that's why it's not an esoteric. I thought I was like, all right, slam dunk, okay. <laughs> Airball instead. <laughs> think about how hard that is if you're a slave. We have no freedom, you just do what you're told. I translated his meaning, don't complain. He says, he's, don't pilfer, don't, don't, don't talk about back. Don't complain about where you are, what you embrace the life. No. So I think but the... the but what do you do when they ask you to do something that's wrong? I mean, we'll, we'll, t- we'll hit that in a few minutes because mm-hmm. we're going to be going in a broader... 
So none of us are slaves here, as far as I know, yeah. right? Okay, well, we're gonna be hitting on a similar theme in just a second, but that would actually apply to us. It depends on what you mean by slave, because there are jobs that you now have to say things that you're not supposed, that you don't believe in, so, yeah. This is where interpretation of scripture gets really complicated, doesn't it? Yes, but we're going to hit the same theme in just a second. <laughs> what is at the end? Because he, he does this. This is how Paul works. Usually it's the flip. He does this kind of big theological thing in his epistles. And then he goes like, and this is how we do th- This is how the household is structured and the church is structured like this. And we should live like this. But he goes through and says, this is how everything should be structured and lived. This is how the older men and the younger men and the older women and the younger women. I mean, it says don't. Rebuke with all authority, too. Yeah. Live a godly life. Yeah, so let, let's read the last few verses because I don't think we hit uh, the two, last few verses of uh, chapter two, two. Uh, right after the bond servants. Okay, the, the last couple of paragraphs, verse 15, 15. starting at 16. For the grace of God. Okay. That's mm-hmm. fine. I know what it is. Actually, I just don't know what the verse is. Uh, that's not it. Look, okay. We should live soberly, rightly, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purity for himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. How do we keep people from despising? <laughs> well, what's, so he's not talking to us. Who is he talking Well, who's Paul specifically talking about? Who is he saying, speak these things to? The leaders. The leaders. <laughs> to Titus, right? So he's telling priests, speak these things with authority, exhort and rebuke. The, the, is, the church. Yeah, the church. <laughs> so on one hand, and let no one despise you. So that's not saying from the outside, but he's saying within the church, let no one despise you because you're doing your job. Who likes being rebuked? Does anybody like being rebuked? I don't like being rebuked. I mean, we already talked about the hard thing of like ob- obedience and not complaining. If you're, living, if you're living that godly life, if you're showing, if you're modeling that, and then you speak, then you exhort somebody or rebuke them, they're not going to despise that <coughs> because they see you're living. Well, they uh, might not like that's it. Not, that's they might not like it, but you're you're not going to live a life that. If there is, if there, so like at the beginning when we're talking about this, Titus 1, we're talking about, uh, and Chrysostom goes very eloquently, I'll say waxes on because when he starts going, he gets going. He's like a, like a contemporary, like Protestant preacher. He's like, all right, preach it. He just like, he's going, (laughs) uh, talks about like the calling that ministers are supposed to be called to and the life that they're supposed to live. Mm-hmm. He also goes to the extremes that certain people want to put on them that is not actually what they're called to do. Uh, like, for example, people complaining about uh, bishops uh, uh, like taking care of their health. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, no, you should actually take care of your health. That is actually something important because your body is a temple, right? Um, but I, I think in the best possible world, yes, you have priests who are striving to live the life they're supposed to. And then out of that, they're able to speak with authority. Mm-hmm. But it, it often is, so there's that aspect where a priest has to live into it. There's the other aspect of those receiving what the priest actually has to say without despising mm-hmm. and not liking what he's having to say. Uh, so it's a two-way 
thing. And sometimes it goes one way, and sometimes it goes both ways, and it's good and healthy. And uh, I, there's always situations in which you like say something even gingerly or nicely, and it is not taken well. It would have been nice if Paul had written it this way, let no one despise you without cause. Yeah, I mean, that's assumed, right? The book of Acts. We've been reading through the book of Acts mm-hmm. in this time, right? Like, yeah. You're turning the world upside down. You took our prophet away from us. It was last Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're going to throw you in jail now. But I think the, the whole is because God has called us out of this, right? He goes to that theological. He's called you to hope. He has given you something to hope for. He's called you away from the worldly lusts such that you can present your lives in an acceptable manner before God, and it's also going to be before the world. And that is the priest's job, is to help you be able to do that thing. It's just complicated and difficult sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Was that you raising your hand? No. Okay, no, just adjusting your... <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we, we've seen the themes kind of in general of Titus 1 and 2. So let's, since we've refreshed, let's dive into Titus 3. Would somebody read um, the first seven verses? I can read. You want to read? I'll go ahead. Um, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So as soon as we jump into chapter 3, remember all the chapter divisions are later, like a thousand years after these were written, okay? So you have to think of it all together and not thinking in like discrete separated things. Uh, We have bond servants, we have the reasoning for things, and then he talks about obedience to rulers and authorities. Who is he talking about? Who are rulers and authorities? Priests. He's not talking about priests here. Any kind of government. He's talking about government. This is a theme in Paul. This is also in Romans. So I think this comes to... Be subject to rulers and authorities. That's where the confusion comes. Right. So because it says <coughs> subjection to them. So that means obedience uh, and also to be ready for every good work. I also think that the sentence doesn't stop there. This also, I think, has to do with then speak evil of no one. Uh, the Greek for speak evil of no one is actually like blaspheme. If you were to look at it in Greek, it looks it's blaspheme. Uh, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. So this creates the hermeneutical question, right? Does everyone know what hermeneutics is? How do we read this? How do, how do we interpret this? What, how do we understand this? Because somebody has already brought up, okay, but what do you do when the authorities and rulers are not obeying God? Well, yeah, but the Christians, when this is written, we got Nero's coming up, you get Diocletian, and there's never an abrogation. It is always the question, 
because this is always the case. <laughs> right. But they're still obedient. This is the thing. They're still yeah. obedient. I think this goes to, uh, I believe it's in the book of Acts, right? Like, are we supposed to obey God or are we supposed to obey men? And there comes a time where you have to make a decision about which things that you're going to obey. So what scripture teaches what Paul says is we're not anarchists, right? Where the, the church is just... Uh, where Christ is the king and then no other authority outside of the church matters. That's not actually what the New Testament thinks. And in fact, in other places in scripture, I believe it's Romans, if I remember correctly, it has, if you, to rebel against them is to rebel against God because God is the one who allows them to be and puts them in authority. So uh, the question comes as to discernment of what exactly are we being asked to do, and then where do you then uh, rightfully refuse to do the things that you're supposed to do? So this is a, becomes a call of prudence and discernment, which uh, the Father's discernment is like the greatest gift. Because and those are real-life issues to really live, because I constantly face this because I teach in the public school. And it's like So it's hard to talk about these things until we get into really specifics and what it is that we're talking about, uh, because sometimes I think there's a question of conscience about what exactly is something that bothers our conscience, but it may not be a doctrinal issue per se. So I'll give you an example. All sorts of people uh, have different interpretations in regards to just a few years ago about vaccines and all of that stuff. Right, so there was a whole lot of brouhaha debate, etc., about that. So that's one thing. Then there's an aspect of uh, I think about sexuality, gender stuff, and very specifically wanting you to say that there's no difference between boys and girls, and that's in the curriculum now. Yeah. So I think those are so the, I, I think the, the, those are different types of things. Instead of focusing on literature and grammar and writing and that kind of stuff, like my new curriculum that I got this year, it doesn't specifically say anything about gender, but it does say, it talks about social justice warriors and um, 
It's relativism, moral relativism. So if there's a moral relativism, that means there is no right and wrong. And now they slip in the, well, you can't really say there's a difference between a man and a woman because it's all relative and it's whatever your truth is. And you can change your own narrative kind of yeah. thing. I saw that in a lot in a lot of our kids' cartoons and stuff. Yeah. Because if you watch them, it's all about like, well, this is how the story was written, but you can change it. In your well, they're head. changing it. can be whatever you want it to be. Yeah. And it's getting scary because I've been a teacher well, for 24 years now, and I have never felt as threatened as I do. Mm. And it's all political. Mm. I mean, it's all, and the media is against us, and the kids are confused. Mm. I teach high school. The kids are confused. So we've got one kid that identifies as a cat. We've got kids that, most of our kids are like binary. They won't say whether they're male or female. And we can't say anything. You know, we're, and then we have a gay lesbian club at our school that affirms them. That's what's so funny. So like, you like, can't tell people yeah. that you're a Christian. I, well, well, I, I do. do. Thing. I think you can. We can still say that we're Christians, but we can't really. Well, um, according to those standards openly. We have to be very careful. And I'm telling you, it, it's scary because. If you, it's, what they're doing is they're creating lack of trust between the um, teachers. Right? Yeah. Between no, everybody's afraid. Everybody's yeah. walking on yeah. <laughs> If you, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing not because of the situation, but this is exact. If, has anyone read uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, Gulag Archipelago, or in, uh, this? That is I what. To, my life, I've read that. Okay, so this is what totalitarian situations do is that they have to create lack of trust and they divide everyone up and make people afraid of each other so that that you also have everybody tattling on everybody else and the Soviet Union it was like kids tattling on their parents even and they were basically you know awarded for those things so I, I think what what starts happening with these things and every person's job and situation starts requiring discernment because some public school teachers, but this is part of the challenge, is like a lot of this stuff is all federally mandated stuff. It's not even local or state level. So you start getting to a situation where it becomes, I, I think that's part of the reason why we have a lot of families who don't put their kids in public schools now because this is going to be the, the trend. And I don't think people could, could have seen it. Like when I was in high school, this is, I graduated in 03, okay? So there was already uh, gay, lesbian, all that, that kind of stuff is already there. And this is Northwest Arkansas. I'm not, I didn't grow up in New York City or something, mm-hmm. right? Like, these things were already there. But I haven't seen any of this in Tennessee since just recently. Mm-hmm. I mean, this well, is, I've been teaching um, in East Tennessee for 24 years. Mm-hmm. Sevier County, Knox County. So, I went to high school for a couple years, 2001, 2002, junior and senior, and they did have a Oh, a gay lesbian couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even know the kids that were in it. And there was one trans person in the whole school. And he was a weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. He was like total yeah. weirdo. Right. So, right. Anyhow, but I don't think they were yeah. encouraging the kids to do what they're encouraging. So, them to I, do. Yeah. so I, I think that the reality is I think we're in a the lobster in the pot mm-hmm. or the frog in the pot. I forget which is that, right? Like the water has been slowly boiling and it's hard when you're not, when you don't have kids in the situation or mm-hmm. it's you don't. I think we're always a few years behind in like what's actually happening <laughs> because it's, you're just trying to live. <laughs> and I, I think it's getting to the situation. I, I mean, that, this is part of the reason in talking about more acreage for the church <laughs> is that if we need to build 
in regards to having a school or something in the future because there's already uh, I have a request from uh, some families to do some they're who are already homeschooling they want to do a co-op and then I start coming like once a week we might do a service like once a month or something for those kids uh, so there I think that the church uh, is going to have to go back to thinking about living as the catacomb church did either, either in Soviet Russia or in the first few centuries of the church because as much as uh, this is I think why Terry has spent so much time on religious freedom that if we start getting a culture that defines religious freedom in ways that are actually inimical to Christianity that you can't actually say anything but everybody else can say whatever they want morally because somehow there's not equal ground for being able to do this. Uh, I think we're just going to have to, as we've seen in the epistles and example of the early church, you got to band together mm-hmm. stronger. Well, can I, it, it's interesting that like we're talking about a totalitarian, um, in a totalitarian society with that push there, trying to undermine a relationship to authority any positive relationship to authority so it's really the complete contrast of what the scriptures teach about trying to respect authority so in a way I feel like those early Christians who were under you know, persecution it's almost as if by showing what should be an appropriate relationship I should be able to obey you because you should be following God so I'm going to remind you by my obedience to the point of death martyrdom to teach and humble you know if god moves in that person that way i don't know just i mean i think that we are called to be the examples of what should be um so i think the what you see is, is they how don't, the heck do you do that i don't <laughs> think you see them fomenting everything. revolution i mean yeah. I, I, that is one of the things that i i think yeah. as americans we are i mean our country is born of revolution and i'm not saying therefore it's bad that there was revolution i just think our immediate thing is revolution uh, she's too. <laughs> uh, but I think if you look at a lot of the early church, they grew because they were martyrs, and because, and you see a lot of the examples of lives of the martyrs, they're about to die. They're 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 up for death. And that's when their tormentors or their jailers convert and die with them because they see and they want that kind of faith, that kind of resolution, that they have hope and that they're going. So you have, uh, I think this also for us to actually delve into scripture, but also in the tradition and get to know the lives of the early martyrs, to know where they stood, what they did and the um, ways in which they supported one another. The ways that they even, I would say, feasted, commemorated those that then did die. That's where they built churches. Somebody was was killed here, we put their relics in the altar and we build a church and that's where the church is. But I also think it was that long, I mean, this is 300 years or so roughly of ebbing and flowing of persecution and then kind of like stalemate. Uh, It's not until Constantine that he uh, basically stopped having Christians killed for the sake of the empire. Because the Roman Empire realized, because uh, you see this in early writings of their response to Christians, this is a subversive force amongst us. Because the Romans knew that their government was religious, right? You worshipped the emperor. 
there was a cult to the emperor. So they were much more like in your face obvious, like you must uh, sacrifice to the gods and show that you're a part of us because they understood that the civil order and the religious order uh, are connected to each other. We still do that in America. <laughs> we just do it in a much more, uh, we say that secularism or like the secular government as if it doesn't have any kind of religious order to it. What I'm saying is that the government, there's no uh, government that is just governing out of neutral ends. The government is neutral. That's not true. There's no such thing as neutrality. You got to worship, I'm going to quote Bob Dylan, always like, <laughs> you got to worship somebody, right? And the government is ends. It's like, just like we say, uh, this is a very common saying, to say that laws don't legislate morality. Yes, they do. <laughs> but why do you put laws in unless you are actually saying this is the way to live? I'm not talking about the minutia bureaucracy. <laughs> but even sometimes the minutia bureaucracy, I'm sure those who lived in bureaucratic situations are like there is a there is a kind of ethos and morality that is there. We don't really treat people as people. They're numbers. So what did Paul mean then by obey the authorities if they were obviously not obeying worshiping their gods and then they were put to death well, what do how, you think how were they being obedient to the authorities just by i mean i just think if they weren't creating a revolution and taking up arms that that simple fact they weren't going to become do you remember when they try to trick jesus yeah right? do you remember when they try to trick jesus uh, in the garden, or? No, no, no. Oh, so many times. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but there's one specifically about this topic, right? They bring him a coin, that ha and yeah. he says, uh, right, yeah. render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. Right. So, uh, for example, can. yeah, it's basically pay your taxes. You can and right. be honest in everything that you can. And I think what you said about being subtle, about leaving out what you can. Yeah. Until someone says until somebody says because that's what I used to have to do when I worked in the hospital because we had training on all that stuff to do and I had to work with a lot of um, and just hope you don't get in trouble transgender people yeah and you know the training got more and more like kind of like no you will do this regardless of what you're you know they have their Morality. rights but you don't have yours <laughs> you know and so like be subtly subversive but only in the things you have to and at what point do you become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, because it's about like, Shadrach, I, I got a taste of it with the vaccine. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to talk about whether you should or shouldn't get it. But right. What but scared was me weird. was like if I was a teacher in New York, I would have lost my job mm -hmm. if yeah. I had refused. Right. In Tennessee, thank God, I live in a state where I didn't have to make that choice. But it scared me the entire time that I went through COVID because. None of us knew as teachers whether we were going to have to make that choice. Mm -hmm. And that scared me. I mean, it scared me because I don't feel like I'm strong enough to lose my job because I'm a widow and I'm by myself and I depend on my job. And you know, and it's like, I can see why in Nazi Germany so many people just went along with the Nazis. Mm -hmm. So I guess, how do I live as a Christian? How far do I go? And, how, you know, yes. Uh, that's the, so I think this is something that we will not resolve this no. morning, right? Can I, can I because build on that? Wait a minute. But this is where life is. I mean, this is where a Christian 
Right, and I think every one of these situations, because when we start talking about this, everyone can have, because I know having had emails and conversations with different people, around, everyone is on different places, not about necessarily vaccine stuff, but just Everything. all of the different things that are popping up right now. Because it's not queens in the libraries. Yeah. Right, uh, as the retired librarians. Forcing you to use Forcing you to use speech scares me too, when they start forcing you to use speech. Then I guess we could just remain silent. This and, is and you're also, how are we supposed to love our enemies in a fight of all of yeah. this? So you're loving this guy that's, you could lose your job, but yeah. that's our job, is to love them. Mm-hmm. Not love what they're doing, right. but as a person and as God's creation. Mm-hmm. It's, like it's hard. are always the pushovers. It's, it's almost like the world sees us as weak uh, until we martyr ourselves for our faith. So but is Jesus like, weak? So, so this is a great question. So is Jesus weak? In some people's eyes, oh. yes. I mean, in Nietzsche's eyes, he was. Like, this is the slave religion. This is Nietzsche's critique of Christianity. Is that Christianity created a pushover? A lot of people look at Jesus, though, and say it's not realistic to love your enemies. And that's why they look at, you know, they find it hard to believe in Christianity because how can you turn the other cheek constantly? And how can you... That's that's the teaching. Yes, Harmony. Well, now I have, like, a There's nothing about Jesus when you read the Gospels that's a pushover. He's very firm on that. There's nothing about him that's a pushover. Yeah, part of me wants to say we're... So, where our job as Christians is to know our faith so well that we have an answer to give. Like, uh-huh. So in that situation, maybe loving that guy is to set, tell him the truth, to say the hard truth. Like, this isn't healthy for you, so I'm, I'm not going to use that pronoun because God made you this way. Sorry. You know? I mean, that I, I do think there's a time Get ready for the fallout. to stand <laughs> if up. If you're ready to but, do that. But to do so through and through with love. And if you can't do it with love, then, you know... I mean, that's how I feel. I'm, I'm wrestling with this, too. I don't have an answer here. I don't have an answer here. Just thoughts. One thing I think about the pronouns is that if you know some, my feeling about it is that if you know someone personally, if you know them and you're working with them, and they ask you to, like, they're, I'm a he and she's a she, I honestly would call that person. I would say, okay, sure, because, like, okay, I don't really think that he's a he, but out of respect. I don't know. I mean, how does that affect you? It doesn't lessen your morals or what you believe. They want to be called a cat. I mean, that doesn't really. I mean, like, you avoid the person. So, so this is why I didn't want to open this too much, is because we get into all, like, this is a discernment of where your situation is. And I think. Okay. Can I ask, like, hold on. Every single person who is in this room has a different set of circumstances and friends and young people. You have to, the, the, the verse I think is most applicable is to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. Mm-hmm. And if you can do, you, you start with that. Yes, we're supposed to love everyone, but it's abstract how you know when you're doing it. Mm-hmm. It's moment by moment with person by person and situation. If the person who asked me to call them cat, it would depend on what my connection to that mm-hmm. person is. Right. Whether I would do that or not. Mm-hmm. Or whether I would even venture. Uh, I don't know. Right. Some of you may not have had this experience. I have a number of gay friends. They've been my friends for years. They were friends before I ever knew anything like that. And I'm friends with all of them still yet. But it's very clear to them 
it, we've never had a conversation, but they all know what I believe. We never talk about it. They are respectful of me, and I'm respectful of them. That doesn't mean that that'll work for anybody else in this room, any other situation. I'm only speaking to trying to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. Because I think that's where they Paul know, goes on. They know that I'm very, very strong in my church. And, um, but my, my point is, I said to one of them, I said, I hate what you're doing, but I love you to death. I just love you to death. You're so wonderful. But I, I, I am not of, of that persuasion. And so we have a respect. I stated where I was, and we had a mutual respect. But now you're in a work situation. Yeah, and a work situation. This nothing I've said will apply to yeah. you or help you in any way, and probably not you either, and maybe no one else here. You've got to find your own way, your own way to to navigate each little thing that comes up. Something that maybe would would just give an example. I had a friend years ago who was a teacher. She was a very strong conservative Christian and she was very against the teachers' union that operated in those days. And she'd let it be known that she didn't like, she didn't like, well, it was anti the scripture and so forth. But something came up, an issue came up, and they needed a vote. And she gave a great deal of thought to it. She prayed about it. She told me some people she prayed with. And she went to her friend and she said, I, I don't like this very much, but I'm going to vote with you. Because what, what, you're, what you're voting for, I believe, is probably a very good thing. And I will vote with you. She compromised what she'd originally said. As it turned out, the whole thing was settled and she didn't have to vote at all. But from that day on, the principal of that school and the other teachers were far nicer to her than they'd ever been before because they saw her willing, she just, to be wise as the serpent and harmless as the dove, her, it was not easy. And I just throw that out there. I know it's time to move on. Well, I, I think <laughs> we have 15 minutes left and we're in verse one. Um, so I think this is why it helps to read the, <laughs> this is why I think it helps to read the rest to, you know, so remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, right? That readiness for every good work, to speak evil of no one. That's very hard. <laughs> to be peaceable, right? Gentle. Gentle and showing all humility to all men. He's not saying here in any of this, uh, compromise what you believe, but he is saying it really matters how you live in regard to these things. Right when there is conflict, when there is something that's challenging. There's a, something that I've been doing. So sometimes we, you know, I love you, but I don't like such. I love you, and I disagree. So not the but. Yeah, no buts. Not, but. <laughs> not, yeah. yeah, that's hard I, for me. And that so when we, when we think about you know Christians are you know doormats. No, we can say, I love you, I forgive you, and I'm also not going to let you do that to me again. Or, I'm all, and I'm not going to agree with you on this, mm -hmm. and I love you. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's and. It doesn't have to be but. I think part of the challenge that's happening is your generation, mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. normative, more normative, to be able to agree to disagree. 
I think what's happening now is like my generation and younger, it is no longer we agree to disagree. It is you have to agree with me or you're a hater or you're, yes, you're a bigot. You're against me. We're going to destroy you. Yeah. And and that is now. If you don't agree with me, you are bad. Yes. You are wrong instead of. And this is where the rest. We have some difference. The word tolerance was twisted in our generation. Very much so. Yeah. And this is why I think these virtues that Paul is talking about are going to have to come you to bear. You cannot tolerate you as long as you agree, agree with, with me. If you right. agree with me, if you're on the right side. Right. Which is not... And the right side, could, it just really depends on who you're, who talking, you're talking to. to. Yeah. Which yeah. is the right side. So if we go on to verse 3, the reason for this way of being able to act like this for Paul is he says that we can think on ourselves and our own sinfulness... That we were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I think what you have, Paul, is basically depicting like the negative uh, photograph or like the of what a Christian is supposed to be like. And then we were the opposite of that before. We were just as foolish. We didn't obey anybody. We all we did was obey our lusts. Uh, and we actually, instead of love being the parent, like the heights, we were at the bottom with hate. Uh, and I think this is a challenge. Some of us grew up Christian, and so it might be harder sometimes to discern, like we were never, maybe it was like for three months when we were 14 that we were like maybe hateful. But I think if we were actually really honest with ourselves, we can see specks or strands of this throughout our life, even if we grew up in the church or around Christianity, um, that there is aspects of our lives that are disordered that should be able to give us the ability to be patient, to love others, because they're not that different from us. They're just not at the place where we are in regards to what we are striving for, what our convictions are, and witnessing to that might be the light that they need in order to be able to get through those things. And it might take a really long time. You never know the seeds that you sow by being able to say, I love you and I can't do this thing, or I'm going to be friends. You never know any of those friends, 20, 30 years of friendship. And then there might be something that it falls down and they're open to it. And you, they know they can come to you to be able to, to connect to Christ. 50 years. Of 50 years. <laughs> So, Paul continues, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What I love about Paul is he's always giving us the God perspective. This is not something that we somehow figured out and like put together ourselves. It's again another sign for us of humility. God revealed himself to us. We didn't come up with the answers. The answers and answers isn't even really the right like the life was not something that we concocted that we can like kind of, you know, I came together with the perfect plan of like, you know, all those uh, self-help books in Barnes and Noble or something. Uh, this is something that has been given to us and be able to receive it as a gift. 
it instills humility in us of the ability to know that God's kindness towards us, this is, you know, and that his love, and I love these words of uh, pouring out that this is who God is. Uh, is also then, of course, what, what is the washing of regeneration? Baptism. Baptism. So we have baptism, and then we have the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We have birth by baptism, and then we have renewal, or kind of like the, one is a, na- uh, a natural metaphor, right, birth, and then renewal is uh, more of an artistic, right? We're going to renew the image. We're going to uh, scrape off the dirt, and we're going to repaint. Uh, we're going to restore uh, what has been effaced. So basically this is Paul talking about the... the the whole economy of God's work for us uh, allows us to be uh, reborn, to be regenerate, uh, and then that we have, especially as we're coming to Pentecost, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Romans, I believe it's chapter 5, the Holy Spirit that has been poured out into our hearts that we are loved by God, uh, that this is uh, the relationship that we can have with God because of Jesus Christ. This is what this language of justification is, that we become with him heirs uh, being adopted into the household of God uh, in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit we have a relationship with God the Father this is all uh, being brought into the life of the Trinity is what the church is all about any questions about those verses or Verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So again, he's, he's talking to Titus, and he's telling him, you know, what I've just said. This is the whole faithful saying, right? What he just said about who God is, what has happened in Jesus Christ, what the Holy Spirit is about. This is something that you affirm constantly. This is why the liturgy is the way the liturgy is. This is the constant affirmation of the church. That Jesus Christ came for us, the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us, and we have a relationship with God the Father through all of this. Uh, But again, Paul's hitting that maintain good works. He'll even, if I remember correctly, he does it again. Uh, in verse 14 and let our people also learn to maintain good works what, why is he so focused on this does that eventually does focusing on that it's like trained. reorient us or, um, it's trained to be used. let our light so shine in the world that others can know and glorify God right mm-hmm. that we've been saved by if Ephesians 2 we've been saved by grace through faith not of our own works why is all of that? So that we can do the works of God. That return that we're talking about that uh, in the ascension of Christ taking our nature up uh, into heaven and, and being seated at the right hand of the Father, that our human nature, we've been restored to the Adamic or Eve. Uh, Adamic has a way of, I don't know if you say Evic. <laughs> the, the original order is what we have been restored to in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, such that we can do exactly what God made us to do, which is the works of God mediated through us to the world, that we govern the world, that we are the kings and queens, that we are the high priests, or even the language that he used earlier in, in Titus for women, that priestesses, there's this like priestly work that, uh, 
that women uh, do, uh, this is what we are returned to. So when I hear good works, I think about soup kitchens and so forth and so on. But good works is also coming in being worship, isn't it? <coughs> I would say good works applies to anything that is good, meat and right and like what God wants us to do. <coughs> I think that's hand embroidery of things. I think that's gathering toothbrushes and toothpastes. I think it is helping clean up after coffee hour. I think it is bringing food to coffee hour. I think it is visiting people who are sick, right? Pure and undefiled religion before is helping widows and orphans, right? I think all of these things are good works. It could be our jobs, too, where we're at. No, well, and that's the, Paul, Paul talks, you, that's what we are just talking about with the service, right? The reason why the slaves are supposed to do the good works is that they give glory to God. They adorn the doctrine so that this really calls us to do everything, everything. is drenched with prayer and sacrifice and is sanctified. I think this is really hard for us because we really have like church. I'm not saying you, but like church happens here and then the world is out there and we do world things. Right. No, <laughs> this is all gods and we are doing church things out there. This is the kind of concentrated, uh, I kind of look at it like the week if you are in prayer and you are struggling against the passions and you are uh, attending to those who need to be attended to, uh, it's because it's not just this internal piety where you're just struggling internally, but it's something that is always shaped outwards. Um, this becomes the Sunday morning or a liturgy becomes the culmination. It is everything that comes. This is where all of what has happened in the week we come and we lay it before him and we offer it to him. It's not just... How do you actually do that? What does that mean? All the things I've been talking about. All the, like, no, I mean like when you come at Sunday morning and you lay it before him. <laughs> like, what does that mean? That you take all of the effort and work of, um, of prayer and struggle of the week and this is where you are fed, where you recharge, where you offer it up to him. You're doing it all the time. Thinking like, and like laying this before you like, yeah. what, like you're supposed to be thinking that during the liturgy like i mean that's literally what we're saying like that the holy spirit come upon us and upon these gifts you're offered that we are offering up thanksgiving for all the things that god has done that's the beginning of the anaphora prayer uh what i'm saying is basically throughout our entire week we are basically offering up the sacrifice of praise we are repenting of our sins we are interceding for others. We are giving glory and thanksgiving to God throughout the week. The liturgy is where all of us come together as the people of God, and God has ordained that this is where he's going to sacramentally be present and feed Him with him, feed us with himself. So it is the entire movement of thanksgiving that we are offering up our lives to him, as opposed to kind of like we're in the world and we're kind of like just living, and then we come here and we get a little Jesus. Have you guys seen Stranger Things? Sorry, this is gonna be okay. All right, do it. Really, I have no idea what you're gonna say. So <laughs> if you haven't seen it, but if you imagine the inverse of everything, like all of that goodness being actually evil, okay, like that's what Stranger Things is because they're on the un the flip side underneath the what do they call it? The, 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 the underneath world or something. Anyway, yeah, the, the main bad guy, like the epicenter, the heart of like all the evil. He's in this attic on the underside of the world, right? It's not in this world. It's like the underside. 
but there's a connection between the two. Anyway, he's in this attic and he's like in this spider web and then like all of these tentacles go out throughout this entire town. So like you can, if you took a walk in the town, you could see like where his tentacles are spreading out. So it's kind of that, like <laughs> this is the epicenter of the good, right? Okay. And so if we could imagine ourselves like connected to that, so wherever we go, whatever we do. Of our, of our <laughs> that was a really weird image. We bring to the liturgy and mm -hmm. offer all those. No, I thought much deeper in that series too, especially the first season. He's yeah. like, this is about depression. I used to know a minister who would say 10% of our Christianity is Sunday morning in church. 90% is what you do the whole rest of the week. Yeah, exactly. But you have to come back here for the services. Bring all that that you've, you've put out and that you've received away from here. Bring it back. Offer it to God. I don't know. There's... With the, with the great entrance, um, is I guess if there's a moment in the service that's like, okay, that's a great I spot. Am, I am like, here, take it all, <laughs> just yeah. take it into the altar. Um, you know, so I know that's some that's I when, when people uh, touch the row as you walk by, you know, that's it's like, okay, take it all in there with you. I'm giving the, the good, the bad, the hard, the ugly, the things I've mm -hmm. not done that I should, the things that, the good that I've done, anything like that, my worries, my fears, all those things, just take it all in because it's all I got. Mm -hmm. That's what I have to offer. It's also where we say, let us lay aside yeah, all earthly cares. Let us lay aside all those yeah, things. Let us lay aside all earthly cares. Take them all in there and transform them. And so just, Start over. Take it all in. And it's then, a crucifixion. And, 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 it's and, a and death. We're doing that together. It's not just you know. Okay, this is just about me. This is we're all doing that together. We're we're in a hospital here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the world wounds us, and we come back together, not just to be strengthened ourselves, but we're strengthened together, so that we can go back out, so that we can get wounded again, so that we can give, so that we can. So wound others, <laughs> not so that we do that, but because it's going to happen, yeah. and and then come back and heal together. That's why when people say, "I don't need the church," you know, it's just me and Jesus. <laughs> well, I don't know what Bible they're me. reading. <laughs> you know, I'll pray for you in the church because that's really got to be hard. You just, you just no. said that you two preacher will come to your house when you need help. <laughs> <laughs> Try calling him. Say, but you know, yeah. <laughs> A donation line. <laughs> so I, 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 so in that moment in the church, if I'm paying attention, you know, because sometimes I'm not, but when I'm paying attention, like that's a practical thing that I can say, okay, God, you know it all. Just here, take it and fix it because you know, make it, make it. Make it beautiful because I sure am not going to. And we can't control things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something that helps me to remember out in the world is God created everyone. He is in their image. And how we treat them is how we should feel like in we're treating God. In as much as you have done it to one of the least of these, you mm -hmm. have done it unto me. Mm -hmm. We have five more minutes to hit one more thing. Yes. I skipped over 9-11 to get to, but this is also echoing Titus 1, and I hate to end on this kind of a note, but I think it's important because it's there. <laughs> 9 through 11. 
So he has all these positive things to say, right? This is a faithful uh, saying, affirm it constantly, that we should maintain good works, as good and profitable to others, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So like we said with Titus, <clears throat> there is... Um, I don't know the word, but a kind of uh, a hardness, and I don't mean hardness in the sense of like being mean or anything like that, but just that we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about life and death, and in the church, there is precious things that need to be defended that are. Um, what salvation hinges upon, right? This is a good and faithful saying uh, that what we understand about Jesus Christ. And we have from the very beginning why Titus is being sent is because there is false teaching. So there is here a, I'll say a pastoral element here. The church is about the most important things. We could, this could become a seminar where we are going to debate all the ins and outs and you know various interpretations of uh so genealogies right like what is going on in the in scriptures at this point and they're like we like spend all of our time debating these things and arguing about these things i'm not that's not to say that scripture study isn't important but that's not the end goal so that we have like you know phds in habakkuk 2 uh and we've nailed down what the hebrew means there and all of that uh, but you, if you're around the church long enough, you will see that there are foolish disputes, there are contentions, there are strivings about things that are not the ultimate things. They are not even secondary things sometimes. They are tertiary or beyond, and they become the focus. And it's not one thing, for, uh, when it, the challenge is when it then becomes where people then want to create followers and divide things up. Um, Especially to if on the internet, there's just a lot of stuff on the internet. Uh, even those who are ostensibly orthodox and have uh, you know 80% good things, 90% good things, and there's that 10 or 20% where they they are basically fomenting schism and dissent in the church. So it's something to just be uh, aware of and discerning, and to uh, seek out when there are things. Um, that seem to be divisive and not actually producing good works and faithfulness, but schism and chaos to have your antennae up about those things. And Titus is given uh, authority here, right? Like basically first and second admonition, right? There's like some warnings. There is a time where there's like a, you got to stop. This is enough. Like, this is not correct. This is not what we teach. And then there is uh basically a rejection there is some division that happens so this is something uh i, I think paul is helpful here is saying that it's a self-condemnation it's where the church is recognizing like excommunication many times what's happening is somebody has already self-excommunicated themselves in the actions that they are doing and there's different levels of culpability to that uh, knowing it or not knowing it uh, and correction that needs to happen 
because as we are looking to Sunday of the first, Fathers of the First Ecumenical Council, right, like there was a rejection of Arius as being a heretic. And that is something that they came together as a council. He was there. They discussed it. He was admonished. Like, this is the way. And he stayed in it. So then he's declared that he's outside the bounds of the teachings of the church. He for the sake of the church. He was a bishop. Priest. Priest. So, Can any questions question? or comments? Yeah, yeah it, was, it was the one, like, I had a long time ago. But it was about... Um, so it has to do with what you were just saying, I think. And that is like, so there's a hierarchy of, there's a hierarchy of issues. Like, it, it's not like all issues are um, equal. So when she was talking about, like, when should I speak up? And you were talking about how not everything is like, um, what did you say? Not everything is uh, like like a... A so I, I problem like biblically, or I don't remember how you phrased that. So I could say so there would be things that uh, one might disagree that is now in the curriculum in the schools that they don't want to teach about certain aspects of history, or they want to do it in a certain light, and it would be hard to make that into a Christological or a Trinitarian or like a dogmatic teaching of the church. But it's something that you would disagree prudentially. That like by prudentially, I mean like. This is not right because I don't agree with this, but it's not explicitly a scriptural thing. And so I think sometimes it's hard because we disagree with it uh, because, I don't know, maybe it teaches something about American history that we don't agree with. Mm -hmm. That is not tantamount to the same thing as like heresy. So to discern those things of like, uh, I think everything is, is not going well, but whether that is actually Christian teaching uh, or a Christian morality versus uh, kind of a broader, how do I say this? A worldly is not the word I want to use, but something that's not explicitly within the teachings of the church, okay. but that you think is bad, that you don't think is a good move. Yeah. But, so that could be something that, even though we felt strongly about it, we could just brush it aside, kind of. Let me give you an example. I, some folks who would say, if you were to have your kid in public school, that in and of itself is sinful. You have others who say no. They're light in the world if there's right. You could have all sorts of debates yeah. about it, and you'll have others who'd be like, "Absolutely not! You're failing your kids because they're in public school." And, that and is a prudential. You're failing them because you don't have them in public schools. So, I've heard that. So that sort of like that's a prudential call. By prudential, I mean like wisdom, discernment, uh -huh. like that you have people die on all sorts of hills <laughs> and want everybody else to die on those hills too so that's where it requires wisdom as to discerning what the situation is like uh what is actually available and what is going on you can't just make the rules for everybody and say the these are blanket things we that's like christian people in the public schools i mean that's why one reason i don't want to leave because we've got to have that godly influence or our kids are it's and when I think, take all the Christians out of the public so, and I think this goes back to like, quiet. we aren't supposed to be quietist in the sense of like, we just roll over and die about things. I think there is, and that means that Christians are active politically and publicly. It's not that suddenly there's nothing to say, because I think people want it. It's odd that people want the church to say nothing political, unless it's the thing that they think is <laughs> the thing that the church should speak about politically. And the church historically, uh, well, 
has always morale with the things that we're talking about. This is kind of what I was talking about. There's not a government that is just completely neutral. There's always this kind of vying, and I'm not saying therefore we should have Constantine 2.0 and have Christendom in, in North America again, because it wouldn't be Orthodox if that's what happens. That's for <laughs> sure. It would probably be Calvinist or something like that. Okay, so be careful what you wish for if that's what you think. Like, so what? What? <laughs> and I think this is why you have struggle and why we actively will say things. I mean, we're not quiet about abortion. The church is very clear. There's encyclicals that are sent out. There's the you know March for Life. But then it comes down to the policy level of how to do all those things. And there's going to be debates and there's going to be argumentation because that's a prudential matter that we have to figure out for the greater good. But the church is not going to take a stance on which policy is the best policy because that's something that has to be debated and politically worked out. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right, we've gone over time, so we should go ahead and close the prayer. Oh, wait, before we, did you want to talk about next time, like what we're reading next? Yes. Or, Let's pray, and, and then we'll yep, discuss. Lord, now let us love thy servant, depart in peace according to thy word. From mine eyes, I see the salvation of salvation prepared before the face of all people, a light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. What do you all want to do next since we finished Titus? I have a few... Uh, things I could suggest. There's one book, uh, he's now a bishop uh, by Father Bishop Irene, which is about the beginnings of a life of prayer. Uh, it's on Amazon, it's $12, so it's not an expensive book, and we could probably do a bulk if we wanted to do a book. Uh, we could go through one of the service of the church, like if we went through the liturgy, or if we went through something like the hours and just prayer books in general to just kind of talk about prayer books uh, and maybe use one prayer book and say this is the one that we're going to use to just kind of talk about and talk about the different prayers in there or how to even put together some of the services at home and by services at home I mean like the hours which are not in your prayer book but say that you wanted an opportunity to pray more or how do I do an activist at home uh, I will say that will probably be one class if we do that because I can't imagine that we have material for more than one class. This is the prayer book that I that, Yes, that's the prayer book that I, that I recommend to folks. So we could do like a, we could do like, do you want to do a prayer book? A how-to? Okay. Yeah? All right. Let's do that.